0: Scott Aniel and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. This week we celebrate the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, a theological movement that restored many biblical doctrines and emphases that had been lost or confused during the Middle Ages, sparked by Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517. Uh, Men like John Huss preceding Luther, Luther himself, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Butzer, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, and others recovered doctrines like justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, on the basis of Scripture alone. But among these reformers, they also recovered a biblical theology of worship. The Church of Rome had developed a theology of the Lord's Table that viewed it as a mystical ceremony in which the bread and the cup transformed into the body and blood of Christ himself, and that he was sacrificed each time the Mass was observed. And the Protestant reformers rejected that doctrine of transubstantiation and proclaimed Christ's death on the cross 1,500 years earlier as completely sufficient for salvation. But other errors had crept into worship during the Middle Ages as well. In particular, worship had been taken away from the people. Worship became the work of the priests and professional musicians, instead of the people's work. The language of worship was restricted to Latin, a language fewer and fewer lay people understood. And worship really degraded into a performance of a few select individuals, such that they would perform the worship acts, even if no one was in attendance. One of the primary reasons medieval church leaders claimed for taking worship away from the people was to protect from errors occurring in worship during the Middle Ages. But we have in our New Testament a text of Scripture that addresses this very thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul recognizes that errors had crept into worship in the church at Corinth, but his answer is not to take worship away from the people. Rather, his answer is to give the people guidelines as to what the elements of worship should be like. And he prescribes certain guidelines to bring these elements back into order. And so I want to just look for a moment at the elements that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 14 and highlight how the Reformers address these very same elements. The first element mentioned in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14 is a hymn. Actually, this is the word psalmos, translated often psalm. But at its root, it simply is a term that means a song accompanied by a stringed instrument. And so most New Testament scholars, I think, rightly believe that in this text, at least, it's used in a generic sense to describe congregational singing in general. And so congregational singing in Corinth had apparently become quite chaotic. but, But in response to that, Paul does not take singing away from the people and give it to professional singers like the Council of Laodicea later did. We know from his letters to Ephesus and Colossae that Paul wanted the people to sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This was a way for them to let the word of Christ richly dwell within them. It was a way for them to express their hearts' affections of gratitude to the Lord. It was a way for them to teach and admonish one another. Singing is the people's work in worship. And this is exactly what the reformers recognized and emphasized. Martin Luther especially believed that next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. He appreciated good music in worship. He even commended the highly complex performance music of Renaissance composers such as Josquin. But he also wanted the people to sing. Luther said, let God speak directly to his people through the scriptures, and let his people respond with grateful songs of praise. That meant that the songs needed to be in the language of the people. The music of Rome was performed by professionals in a language the people did not understand, but Luther demanded as many songs as possible in the vernacular which the people could sing. He argued this, for who doubts that originally all the people sang these, which now only the choir sings? But poets are wanting among us, or not yet known, who could compose evangelical and spiritual song, as Paul calls them, worthy to be used in the church of God. Luther recognized the biblical mandate for the people to sing. Luther's emphasis led him to write about 35 hymns himself, and by the time of his death, he had facilitated some 60 hymnals of songs in the German language, and 60 years later, almost 25,000 German hymns, had been produced. Congregational singing, according to Paul and emphasized by the Protestant reformers, congregational singing should be a central emphasis of the people's work in worship. Well, in a moment, I want to look at the next element of worship mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14 that the reformers emphasized. But first, I want to emphasize to you a Reformation era hymn that you may not know, but is a wonderful hymn that focuses our attention upon the cross. It's the hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus, originally in the German, Herzliebster Jesu. The text is written by Johann Hermann about a generation after Martin Luther, but in the tradition of the Lutheran Reformation. He wrote it in 1630, and it was later translated in the 19th century by Robert Bridges into English. The first stanza of this wonderful Christ-centered hymn reads this way, Ah, Holy Jesus, how have you offended that mortal judgment has on you descended, by foes derided, by your own rejected, O most afflicted. This hymn emphasizes the fact that it was not Christ's sin that put him on the cross. The second stanza says, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon you? Alas, my treason, Jesus, has undone you. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I, it was, denied you. I crucified you. And then after a few stanzas further emphasizing the sacrifice of our Savior, the final stanza reads, Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay you, I do adore you and will ever pray you. Think on your pity and your love unswerving, not my deserving. A wonderful hymn that focuses on the imputed righteousness of Christ in our behalf and the fact that he took the punishment that we rightly deserved. The tune was composed in 1640 by Johann Kruger, a church musician in Berlin, again in the Lutheran uh, tradition, the tune name is named after that original German title, Herzliebster Jesu. A wonderful hymn that focuses our attention on the cross. I'd encourage you to visit classichymns.org and scroll down to Ah Holy Jesus, where you can download a PDF of this hymn for free. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, the second element of worship mentioned there is lesson. And the third is revelation. Lesson is a translation of a term that simply means teaching. Revelation would have been a direct message from God himself. And grouped together, we could categorize these two terms as the proclamation of God's word. Of course, the believers in Corinth did not have the complete canon of God's word yet, so they needed direct revelation from him. But today we can affirm together that what we have in the 66 books of our Old and New Testaments is our sure word of revelation from God today. So at very least, these two terms taken together, lesson and revelation, apply to the reading and preaching of Scripture. God's revelation inspired for us and authoritative for us today. So again, evidently, these practices in Corinth had become disorderly. But as with singing, Paul does not solve the problem by removing the elements from the people. Rather, he gives them guidelines for how they are to conduct themselves when they engage in these things. During the Middle Ages, preaching, like singing, had been diminished to the point that in some churches it was no longer practiced. The Roman Church also prescribed that only specific scripture passages be read on particular days of the year, and they made sure to skip any passages that would cause theological misinterpretation or controversy, and even then the scripture was read in a language the people couldn't even understand. In some cases there remained in a liturgy a place for a sermon, but if a church had something, it was usually a short homily, comprised of stories and statements from the Church Fathers, rather than an exposition of Scripture. The Reformers recognized the mandate to follow Paul's instructions to Timothy to preach the Word and to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. The Swiss Reformer Ulrich Zwingli, in particular, gave special emphasis to the regular expositional preaching of God's Word. In contrast to the restrictions of the Roman Church, Zwingli began the practice of preaching what we sometimes call Lectio Continuo, and that is simply preaching straight through books of the Bible. He began in Zurich with the book of Matthew and simply preached verse by verse through the book from week to week. And that practice accomplished a couple of important things. First, it allowed the preacher to explain the text and admonish the people within the broader context of the whole book of the Bible. In other words, it is far less likely for a preacher to be able to rip a passage of scripture out of context to prove a particular point that he wants to make if the people see the text in its context. And that happens with verse-by-verse exposition. And second, preaching verse-by-verse through a book prevents the preacher from skipping difficult texts or ones that he's afraid will cause controversy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is all profitable. And so the reading, explanation and admonition of the word of God is part of necessary corporate worship. And this too during the reformation was given back to the people. And then finally we have mention in 1 Corinthians 14:26 tongues and interpretation. Paul says back in verse 2 that one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. So tongues, at very least, is a form of prayer to God in the first century. And here we find illustration of what is sometimes called the dialogical nature of corporate worship. God spoke to the people through the reading and explanation of Scripture and through direct revelation in the first century. And the people spoke back to God through the singing of hymns and with prayers, sometimes in other languages that needed interpretation. And here we find really the nature of worship. God speaks to us and we speak back to him. So although there were problems in the Corinthian church with singing and preaching and praying, Paul did not remove these responsibilities from the people and give them exclusively to professionals. Ultimately, corporate worship is the people's work. In fact, we get our word liturgy from a compound Greek word that means just that, the people's work. Corporate worship demands active participation of every person in the congregation. Every person must be involved with the work of worship. And this was one of the most significant recoveries of the Reformation. Well, in a moment, I want to look at how Paul closes out 1 Corinthians 14 and his instructions regarding corporate worship. But first, I want to recommend to you a book that highlights scripturally formed worship that was recovered by the Reformation. It's a book titled Worship Reformed According to the Scripture by Reformation scholar Hughes Oliphant Old. By Reformed According to Scripture, Old is simply referring to worship in the Protestant tradition, as we've been discussing. And in this book, he highlights four basic principles for worship in this Reformation tradition. Worship must be scriptural, worship must be in Christ's name, worship must be in the Spirit, and worship must be holy and sincere. And then he devotes particular chapters to specific elements of worship like baptism, the Lord's Day, praise, ministry of the Word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, daily prayer, and almsgiving. And I will say as a Baptist I have some disagreements with his chapter on baptism for particular as a Presbyterian but for the most part how old treats the elements of worship in terms of scriptural formation is very very helpful. And in his last chapter he addresses two possible extremes either either slavish conformity to particular practices on the one hand or perpetual liturgical revision on the other hand always chasing after what is new and he commends a middle way particular traditions rooted in scripture that we should consider for our worship today when he explains these major elements of worship Old fully connects them to their biblical bases, and he traces their development in the early church and throughout the Middle Ages, and then particularly in the Reformation, but he shows specifically how the Reformers emphasized biblical authority in these important elements of worship. So I would highly recommend this book by Hughes, Oliphant, Old, Worship Reformed According to Scripture. Well, as I've mentioned, instead of taking the elements of worship away from the people in response to abuses, like the medieval Roman church did, Paul offers guidelines in 1 Corinthians 14 for how they should be conducted. And the emphasis in this chapter can be highlighted by a statement that he makes in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. That admonition fits right with the emphasis of worship as the people's work. Worship is not simply done out of duty. The elements of worship are for the the benefit of the people. And Paul's emphasis here is not only for the benefit of individuals. His emphasis is on the building up of the body. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul stresses this. For example, in chapter 14, verse 3, where he says, the one who prophesies builds up the church. And in verse 5, he says, so that the church may be built up. And in verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. So corporate worship is not a time for professionals to simply do their duty or for individuals to receive a blessing. Corporate worship is the people's work whereby the body of Christ is strengthened and built up. And this was the dominant emphasis of the reformers. Now, this emphasis upon building up the church might strike you as quite man-centered. Here, Paul is talking about corporate worship being the work of the people with the goal of building up the church. Where is the Godward focus in all of this? Well, ultimately, because for many years a godword worship has been lost in so many churches in favor of Sunday morning services given over exclusively to a sort of man-centered focus, the idea of Godward worship on the one hand and building up of the body on the other hand perhaps may seem to be mutually exclusive. You either have services that are focused on God or services that are focused on people. You can't have both, can you? But on the contrary, God-focused worship and edification are not mutually exclusive. In fact, the most edifying, building-up content for worship is revelation from God himself and response of praise and thanks to him. Think about it. What is it that the church really needs? The church needs God's revelation read and explained, an opportunity to express hearts of adoration and gratitude through the singing of hymns and prayer. This is exactly what we find in 1 Corinthians 14. These elements of worship are to be done for the building up of the body. They are themselves acts of worship toward God. For example, in Romans 1.9, Paul says, I worship God with my whole heart. How? In preaching the gospel of his son. He says something similar in Romans 15 16, God gave me the grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God sanctified by the Holy Spirit. These are acts of worship toward God that also build up the body of Christ. In corporate worship, God speaks to us we speak back to him, and all along through this dialogue between us and God, people learn, people are encouraged, and the body of Christ is built up. And notice what Paul says is the basis for all of these instructions in verses 36 through 38. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. You see, ultimately, corporate worship must be regulated by the word of the Lord. The Corinthians wanted to order their worship according to their own creativity and ingenuity, as if they alone had received the word of God. But Paul admonishes them, That when he writes to them, this is the inspired word of God. It is scripture. And if what they determine to do in worship, whether or not they think they are prophets or spiritual, if it does not find warrant in inspired scripture, then it should be rejected. Corporate worship must be regulated by God's word. This was also a significant emphasis of the reformers, especially John Calvin. He said this, he said, God declares all self-made worship, however splendid and beautiful it may be in men's eyes, accursed. If all voluntary worship which we ourselves devise apart from God's commandment is hateful to him, it follows that no worship can be acceptable to him except that which is approved by his word. And so Calvin insisted and the other reformers insisted, as Paul does here, that all elements of corporate worship must find explicit warrant in the Word of God. You see, when we recover this God-centered, scripture-shaped approach to corporate worship, then corporate worship will be, as Paul commands at the end of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, done decently and in order. This was the emphasis of the Reformation that we celebrate this week, and I pray that this will be our emphasis today as Christ's churches in the 21st century, thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting services, and if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. That really does help to spread the word. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com/scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org, and for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.